Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey there, welcome in. Yes, it is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 259. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell with you from the aforementioned Zone Radio studios. Downtown brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Got a couple of great music-related conversations for you this week on the program. A pair of talented guys who were all over the radio and the hi-fi, as we used to call it, uh, back in the late 1960s. In the second half of the program, singer Gary Puckett, who had as big a year as anybody in 1968. He sold more records than the Beatles that year. Gary Puckett and the Union Gap with a slew of hits like Woman, Woman, Lady Willpower, Young Girl, Over You, Gary heading out on the road for the Happy Together Tour this summer. We'll talk about that and more. Uh, First, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Great work for a number of years with the Hollies on huge hits like Bus Stop, The Air That I Breathe, Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress, Carrie Ann on a Carousel, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. Alan Clark was retired from the music business for about 20 years, had some vocal troubles, His wife was battling cancer. His wife, not only still around, but they're coming up on their 60th anniversary. His vocal troubles have uh, resolved themselves. And Alan's been uh, back in the music biz the last few years, including a brand new album called I'll Never Forget, featuring a single, Buddy's Back, and a number of songs with his former Holly's bandmate, Graham Nash, singing harmony. We had a chance to talk about all of it, with Alan Clark. Well, thank you so much for uh, for making some time for us today. Hey, no worry, no worry at all. Uh, the new album I'll never forget is is so good, and uh, what I love about it is we hear that uh, we hear that deeper voice that we heard on your last album, Resurgence. But there are also some echoes uh, of the Hollies and your early solo work. It's just a wonderful collection. Thank you very much, Rich. Yeah, glad to have Graham on it as well. That's yeah, oh, absolutely. We'll, we'll talk about that. I want to talk about the, the album opener, which is great. You need someone to save you. I love that song. What's the story behind it? Well, I think the lyrics speak for itself, really. I mean, there's a lot going on in the world that people really have to take a good look at, you know. Um, I don't know. It's, it's just my my little my little song that may actually turn another person to look the other way to do something that he's not doing to help the planet. And and then, you know, my job will be done sort of thing. <laughs> it's about the it's about the planet and it needs saving. It needs saving. It really does. But sure does. Well, you mentioned Graham. You uh, reached out to Graham. Was uh, the title cut, I'll Never Forget, was that the first song that you sent him that, that got him to uh, agree to be a part of this project? <clears throat> well, you know, we have been talking for many, many years about what it would be like if we got together and and it, it happened about two years ago when my resurgence album was out i played that to him and uh and in, in graham's way he nodded and said hey that sounds really good and uh, and i thought then well maybe I, I need to start writing songs that you know he will uh, appreciate and um yeah i'll never forget was the song that i wrote about maybe this is not going to happen uh, if it does happen, uh, will it be accepted? 
Will it sound good? I've got to write the songs and all the situation that arises in making a decision, really. Uh, but I did send it to him and he liked it and he said, OK, let's do it. Well, I, I so love that. that. It's a great song. And then uh, Buddy's Back, which you've released as a single, getting airplay around the world already. And, and what a wonderful yeah. ode to one of your musical inspirations. Well, what happened, I mean, I'm, I've written most, well, all of the album. Uh, and I said to Graham, well, you better write something. And, and he said, well, OK, uh, let me think about it. And uh, typically, Graham, uh, he came up with this this song. He sent it to me, and uh, and he said, this is about Buddy. And when I played it, I thought, well, that says it all, really. You know, we were kids. We heard Buddy Holly. I mean, we wanted to play a Fender Telecaster, but couldn't afford anything like that at all. Uh, <laughs> you know, but his songs sort of, uh, we, we grew. We grew up with his songs and playing his songs so much that we actually called the group the hollies you know but yeah the, the, the song is great now i that's spe what, speaking of buddy holly i see over your left shoulder that wonderful buddy holly guitar yeah yeah uh well that's the guitar that i write all my songs on uh ever since i've had it now i've had it now for nearly 12 years you know the holly the, the buddy holly education foundation um is a charitable uh, uh set up by two guys who like uh, like me and Graham fell in love with Bud Holly and um, decided to make 25 copies of this guitar that uh, that Buddy used to use quite a lot when he was writing. Uh, luckily enough, I got mine for life. Uh, everybody else has to give theirs back after two years. But I tell you, every time I come up here, this is this used to be a bedroom about six years ago uh, until I it was COVID. Not knowing what to do with myself, I thought I'd write some lyrics in a song. Uh, and I started then and, and got research, resurgence out of it. But that is the guitar that I pick up every morning and play Peggy Sue on it, because that was one of the first songs that I ever, that, that, that I actually learned to do with the, the three famous chords, but could never get the B minor in. I used to just fluff that. But uh, yeah, I play that guitar every day. That's wonderful. Did I did I see a story that uh, the foundation also offered to you a, a little Peggy Sue memorabilia? Yeah, I mean Peter Bradley Senior, the guy who who we get in touch with, you know, about the foundation. He did ring me up one day and said, uh, "Look, I, I'd, I'd like you to have something for your guitar." And I said, "Okay, uh, the guitar is great. I don't need anything else." And he said, "No, I would like you to give you Peggy Sue's wedding ring." Now this wasn't the wedding ring. She, they never married, right? Right. So, but this was Peggy Sue's wedding ring to someone else. But the association with the song Peggy Sue got married, which mentions the ring, uh, and it's quite famous. It's iconic. Uh, and I had to decline. I said no. I'm not. I'm not going to take the responsibility of having something like that on my guitar that I would probably lose. So no, thank you, Peter. But. It would have been great if I'd have had the balls to do it, but no. <laughs> and you guys, uh, how great was it to have the opportunity to play behind Buddy, in a sense, uh, when you re-recorded Peggy Sue Got Married for the film? Well, we only had what Graham came up with. Um, the Hollies were approached to do something, and uh, intermediate to that, I think Graham found out that we were doing it, and he got actually... Um, a copy of Buddy Holly singing Peggy Sue with no backing. 
which, you know, in those days, you had to take the vocal off and get rid of anything else. But it was a pure recording of him. And uh, we decided that we'd, we'd back him singing and putting a, a few harmonies here and there. And we enjoyed doing that. And Graham did fly over to sort of join in. And uh, I, th I think it was a great rendition, but it was really eerie, you know, just waiting for a cue to come in with Buddy Holly singing, thinking, wishing that the guy was probably there somewhere within the Abbey Road studios, which is where we did it. But, you know, but it was dead. It was, that was actually donated to the, the foundation as one of the songs that went onto an album. And uh, I, I think the boys still do it on stage. I'm not too sure. It's wonderful. I want to talk more about the album. It's so good. I really enjoy uh, the song "When Loved Walk Out of the Room." It's got it's got a little country sound to it, but boy, it just to me it feels like an early Roy Orbison record. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that because I had that in mind when oh, I was doing wow. it. Uh, um, I've had that song. I had it in my mind for quite a long time, and tried to do it in different in different ways uh, to get the sort of uh, proper feel that I really wanted on it. I did try to do a little bit of Elvis at the beginning, but that didn't work. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> but no, it's just, it's just one of those songs that you you know that you, you you have to write when the words come to you, and it's about relationship with a guy who falls in love with somebody, and uh, who disappears from his life, and that's the story about how he felt. And uh, I think one of my best lines is 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 about the uh, the sneaker on the floor, you know, like me abandoned on the floor. Yeah. And uh, and what what I did with Francis, my my producer, I said we want to make this sound a bit of like Roy Orbison or Roy Orbison would do it, and he said okay. Uh, so I came up here and I, I did some like doobie doos on it, you know, doo -doo -doo, and all that sort of thing, and we tried to get that sixties feel, uh, you know, of the Roy Orbison style, and I think we cracked it. I, I like that song. Yeah, mission yeah. accomplished on that. A great vocal, too, on, on Let's Take This Back to Bed. Yeah. <laughs> um, Graham, did, had, Graham didn't know whether he wanted to sing harmonies on this one because he thought it might be too associated with sex. But I had to say to him, no, it's got nothing to do with that. It's, um, it's a story about two people. Well, I can tell you, I mean, I've had this, everybody has a situation with the person that they love or they're living with or whatever who don't understand a, a certain type of something that someone might say early in the morning and then you asking them why and them saying, well, you should know what, why, and, and, and getting the story all mixed up. They, at the end of the game, they don't know what each other is talking about. So the best thing to do about something like that is let's take you back to bed. And I think that's it all, really. Uh, <laughs> that's a good that's a cure for everything. Exactly. I love the album's closer, uh, Who Am I? Uh, wonderful harmonies from Graham and great work sure. by Francis Haynes on that. Yeah, he's brilliant. You know, I've known Francis a long time. Um, he was in the Hollies uh, mm -hmm. for, for a while in, in the 80s. And then I, and I've been in touch with him all that time after that. And he, he was the one I went to when I wanted to do my demos, when I'd written with other people. And, and he, he is just a master of putting things together and, and, and making magic on the piano and bringing something out of the air that you never thought of, you know. But um, I, I probably work with him for the, the rest of my life now because he's, he's given me the chance to express my feelings within a song by bringing something out of him, me which I didn't know was there. 
you know, especially with the singing. Uh, but no, he rearranged and he, he more or less composed the everything on that song. Apart from me doing my little guitars here and there. <laughs> We're talking with Alan Clark. His wonderful new album is called I'll Never Forget. Uh, I want to go back a little bit, if we may. And we've talked about, Graham, your friendship began... What it was it uh, the Ordsel Board School when you were both six years old? <laughs> Ordsel Boarding School. Yeah, I flitted from one house to another. Uh, I can't tell you why because I was too young, so I don't really know. But I do remember going into a new school with my mum and me being presented to a class of people, and the the teacher saying, "Does anybody have a spare seat for for this chap who's new to the area?" His name is Harold Clark, because that's my real name. And the hand went up and down. I went and I sat next to this guy, and it happened to be Graham Nash. Uh, we became instant friends, and we were inseparable uh, for the first 14 years uh, of our lives, doing normally what kids do, you know, not thinking about music in any way whatsoever. It was just going out to the park and, and existing you know, in a way that, you know, got us through our younger life. The difference between me and Graham was that I had four sisters and a brother, and he only had one sister. So I always thought he was better off than me, you know. So, <laughs> but, but we got over that. We got over it. No. Well, in terms of musical influences, I, and I think this is so interesting, we talked to Dave Davies of the Kinks a few yeah. weeks ago, and, and he brought him up so many other musicians have the influence of Lonnie Donegan on you guys yeah. back in the 50s. Lonnie Donegan was the guy that saved a lot of kids that going out on the road and misbehaving themselves. <laughs> I mean, he made it possible uh, for me and Graham to persuade our fathers to buy us guitars, and they were cheap guitars. You know, there was, there was nothing flash about skiffle in any way. And the famous three chords, you know, uh, and we, 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 we met every now and again to, we did, uh, what was it? Um, we did Long Lost John, Bridge, you know, Bring a Little Water, Sylvie, all those old ones, uh, you know, and, and we loved it. We, we just liked making music together, and it was fabulous. Um, until uh, my brother, Frank, um, he, he heard us doing uh, Rock Island Line, and he said, that sounds pretty good. I'll take you to a club up the road called the Devonshire Sporting Club and try to get you on there for a spot. Well, he did that, and we walked into the club. And as you can imagine, Graham and myself had never been in a place like that. You know, we'd never be allowed. But at 14 year old, you know, we were both there. I think we still, I think we still had short trousers. But anyway, <laughs> the guys said, yeah, okay, we'll give them a spot. So we went on stage, and you're looking through a cloud of cigarette smoke and, you know, guys drinking pints and all that sort of thing. And we didn't really know what we was doing. But we started and we sang, uh, we sang Rock on the Line and the usual things. And when we stopped, there was like a moment of silence. And then everybody jumped up and started cheering. <laughs> and we didn't know what was happening to it, Graham and I. But when we came off, the owner of the club said, look, that was great, boys. You saw what happened there. Um, I'd like you to come back at some other time and gave us a 10 bob note, 10 shillings note, which in today's is about 50p. In those days, 10 bob, 10 shillings was a lot of money. Uh, so, you know, and we thought, oh, well, that's nice. 
But the money, you know, after that, it didn't really mean anything to us. We did make a, a few bob to be able to help our families out with it at the same time. Not not a great deal, but it was it was the music that, that we liked doing when we did those clubs. And there were some really dodgy clubs that we did, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, uh, the Hollies formed, and, and you had the great success uh, in the U.K. and with the stay, searching, uh, 1964, just one look. But, but didn't hit in that first wave of what we... We call the British invasion here in the states, uh, but was that always a goal for you to have success over here? Uh, well, I think that's in everybody's mind. When you when you've actually got to um, a certain part of your career, uh, which started in 1963, with us never knowing that we were going to be that famous, uh, but you know when you have hits in England and you see the Beatles getting number ones in America. Um, it's all down to the recording, the, the company, EMI, who we're with, who say, look, you've got to get over there. We'll try and, you know, the only way you get over there is to have a hit record in the States. Well, bust up and, and, and just one look. And those sort of things we got. So therefore, we got on a plane and, and went across and got out the other side. And we were in New York. And it was, it was wonderful. I mean, we only saw that in films when we were kids. But to actually fly all that way and then get and then get to a place called New York, and the phones when they rang sounded exactly the same in the films, you know. And uh, we loved it. It was a great it was a great thing to sort of be there and, and see it in the real sense of being New York and America. Yeah, we loved it. Graham was on with us a couple of years ago, and and I I said this to him, and I say it to you. Even though the Hollies are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think you're underrated. I think people don't mention the Hollies the way they should when they talk about the, the greatest bands of all time because you listen to those songs, whether it's Bus Stop or Carrie Ann, On a Carousel, Pay You Back with Interest. They sound as good and as fresh today as they did all those years ago. Well, mainly when we were recording the Hollies at, at Abbey Road. Uh, well, it was here in my recording studios mm. first. Or the other four guys decided to turn it to Ivy Road, um, was that, you know, in the old days, there weren't that many tracks to record with. So, you know, if you've only got four tracks, you're more or less live, you know, and us and, and the Beatles were very good as live bands. So we didn't worry us about actually only having four tracks. Uh, and that lasted for quite a while until they actually, like Buddy Holly, was bouncing tracks before we'd even heard about you could do that, you know. Uh, so that actually somebody came along and they said, well, you can bounce tracks. So four tracks went into five tracks, and then you bounce again, so there you have six tracks. And it went on and on, but most of the early songs that we did were virtually live, you know, and we were very good, actually, when we were doing the song, we had rehearsed it. And so when we went to studios, where in the original, you'd given three hours, you know, and that was it, you had to do something. And it, it would take us three hours to do a single, and, uh, and that's how we used to work with with Ron Richards, our you know our producer. Now, and did you like, did you and Graham and Tony share a mic as if you were live when you were recording? Um, yeah, we did when we were doing the harmonies. Um, I mean, I got my own mic when I was doing solo mm -hmm. stuff, and then Graham would stand would come in with Tony. And, and do their um, on on mine, and then we would like double track it, you know, and things like that, just to make it fuller. Mm. There were there were there were small tricks you could do in those days, 
where today you can do anything. Right. You know, I mean, the world is your oyster in, in doing anything. I mean, this boom box things that's out now, <laughs> when everybody's starting using is, uh, I don't know whether I like that at all. It's not like live music, but there you go. It's, uh, the music industry has changed a hell of a lot. Yeah, that's for since, sure. Stop, yeah. Stop, Stop was such a unique record. Whose idea was it to add the banjo? Ah, well, the, the the reason for the song was when we were in New York and we were playing at the Paramount Theatre. I think they pulled it down since then. And uh, the guy who was topping the bill was Stupid Sales. And he had a number one record, Do the Mouse. And we thought, what's this guy topping the bill for? You know, we got Little Richard two doors down from where we are. He should be on top of the bill. You know, and Dee Dee Warwick, she was there. She should have been on top of the bill. But the guy who was running the show had a had a, a nightclub. And he said, if you want to go to the nightclub, boys, you know, you, you, you just mentioned my name. My name's Mr. Levy. Just say Mr. Levy sent me. Uh, we didn't know in those days that how powerful Mr. Levy was. But um, we got into the club and uh, you met Tom Jones there. So we, we sat at this table and then this cabaret started and out came this belly dancer, uh, which he, we'd never ever seen a live belly dancer like that. And we went, wow, this, you know, this, this girl's dynamite. And he stuck in our minds. And at that particular time, we started writing that in a taxi on the way to Top of the Pops, to do another song and uh, and because of the actual way we did the song the feel of it and it was a belly dancer we had to put uh, what they called the raga sound into it in those days so tony i don't know where he found the banjo i don't know where it came from suddenly he came in with the banjo and said here's the sound and and it made the record and that's how it was everything by chance that's wonderful what was the experience like uh, for all of you to work with uh, other heroes of yours phil and don everly on two yanks in england well what can i say that you know phil and don between for me and graham they were gods in in the day we went to see them uh, in manchester stood outside a hotel which was the most expensive hotel in manchester waiting for Don and Phil to come and stay. They might be staying here because it's the best hotel. They did. They arrived and they spent about half an hour talking to me and Graham, which to us, we were just astounded that we were meeting these guys, you know, physically. Uh, and much later, when we became famous, we actually, they rang, they rang us and said, will you come round to the hotel and play us some songs? Can you can you imagine what that's like? It's just it's anyway, we went to the hotel and we played a few songs and they said, Okay, we like those eight songs. Uh, wow, one would have been great, you know, but eight and the and then uh, Phil said, We want you to come to the studio and help us. Uh, oh god, <laughs> what's gonna come next? So we got to the studio and, and there's Eric Clapton and uh, and the uh, the the bass player from uh from Led Zeppelin, uh, I forget what his name is. Now. Anyway, forget him. He was only a bit. He was a, he was a you know just a musician, and and uh, and Elton John, you know. And um, so we're going along and we're doing these tracks, and I'm I'm sat in this this well stood in the singing booth with with Don Everly, uh, <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, we're going to do something here. And and he stopped the recording, and he turned to me and he said. Hey, Alan, said, how do you sing that line again? Wow. Oh, God, 
<laughs> never, that you know that doesn't happen. Things like that never happen. But this one particularly did, and that that's that's the thing that I take with me now. That Don Everly asked me how to mm-hmm. sing a line. It didn't matter to me what happened after that, you know. So, yeah, that's one of the memories that I had from that. Unfortunately, the album should have been a bigger hit than it was. But, you know, it's become a standard. uh, But, yeah, it was a nice piece of history that I can tell my kids about. Now, in those days, were were the three of you uh, billed still as uh, L. Ransford in the songwriting credits? I don't know. I don't know how that happened, (laughs) you know. People were saying, well, your names are too long to get on the on the cover, you know, on the disc. And we thought, what do you mean, Clark Hicks Nash? It's not, you know, this is one you have to you have to think of something small. I, I think there was something else involved there, but I, I don't know what it was. Uh, but then Graham said, oh, well, L. Ramsford, that, that was uh, one of his grandfathers, I think. So that went, uh, there are copies going around with L. Ramsford on, uh, which, as you know, it's Clark Hicks and Nash. I, I think that when we wrote our first uh, single, A-Side, we're through, that uh, we got Clark Hicks and Nash on that, and, and it kept like that forever. I think uh, yeah. one, one of your absolutely best and most soulful vocals was on uh, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. Who found that song? That's Tony Hicks. Uh, Tony Hicks found it in a publisher's office, uh, and it, it looked like something that had just been discarded on the desk with dust on it and that sort of thing. And uh, Tony said, well, what's that? Uh, the guy played it and Tony said, I think this, uh, I think we could do something with this song. He brought it, he brought it to the studios and played it to, to Ron. And Ron said, this is a fabulous song. I think we might be able to put something together and, and this would be a big hit. Um, that was one of the first times that I'd, I'd sung with a full orchestra. You know, so, you know, you had to get it right. You can't go through an orchestration like that more than twice. You know, you have to get the vocal right. And and we did that. And, and what happened after that, putting all the overdubs of, uh, you know, the, well, the harmonica was played by one guy out of the orchestra. Um, I, I can't remember what his name was now, but um, I did start playing that after a while. And when he was finished and he went out, it took a while to get, going on the radio plays and things like that. But when he did, it just, you know, and, uh, and that, that was when I, I said to myself, well, I really am, I, I really am glad that Graham left actually, because if he hadn't left, I wouldn't be doing the song. <laughs> <laughs> well, you ended up leaving yourself and uh, went off as a solo artist and did, did some wonderful albums. I, I love some of the songs on My Real Name is Errol, uh, Mary Skeffington, Walpurgis Night. It's a terrific album. Well, you know, I mean, I was on my own. Uh, nobody told me to do anything. I could do what I wanted. I'd, I'd just come up with a guy called Ray Glynn, who was a fabulous guitarist. We became pals. And uh, and we thought, well, when we're going to record, we're going to record with people who we know. I uh, did a lot of work with Dee Murray, bass player, Tony Mansfield, the drummer. Herbie Flowers, he played, played bass on a lot of stuff that we did. And uh, and we just enjoyed ourselves. It, actually, maybe we shouldn't have enjoyed ourselves that much, really. <laughs> but but it, we were really, in those days, we were really digging what we were doing, you know. Uh, but that, I mean, that lasted about three albums. Uh, when I did go back uh, to the boys, I mean, you know, we, we, I got straight into doing But the funny story about the, the album when I when I actually left the boys, 
when I when I asked them I want to do some albums, they said, well, if you do it, you're going to leave the group, and that's it. There's no coming back. Uh, so I so I decided that I'd do it anyway. You know, uh, life was like that that day, and um, and so I, I started writing with a guy called Roger Cook, and. Um, we were just finished the when I said that to the boys, we were just finishing an album called Distant Line. And as you know, on that one particular album, there's a song called Local Woman in a black dress. Well, I wrote that with Roger before we started doing that album. And uh, and Roger and I were in quite a merry mood uh, after downing about half a bottle of brandy, trying to get into the mood of rock and roll. And, and this song came out, you know, and it was about half an hour later. Uh, we were saying, well, okay, that, that'll go on your next album. Well, it did go on the next album, but when we actually recorded it, I played the guitar. I even wrote the riff, which I can't, I still today, I don't know where it came from. Mm. You know, it's just one of those things that you play, you know, and you go, well, that's nice. Um, so anyway, I played the guitar, uh, Bob, and, uh, Bob and Bernie did the backing, and it was complete rock and roll. Um, I did two tracks on it, uh, vocally, and I think we took the first track. And uh, the engineer that we had, Ron Richards, wasn't there, so he didn't produce it. I mean, there was all these things that the Hollies wouldn't do that, the Hollies wouldn't do that, and the Hollies wouldn't do that, but the Hollies did, you know. And uh, so there it was. It was on the album. I had left the group, mm. and. Um, and I got a call from America saying, can I publish this song for you? And I said, well, why? He said, it looks like it might be number one in America. Okay. Oh, okay. You know, it was, it was just a throwaway song. You know, you can never guess what, what's going to be big and what isn't. Uh, and my only uh, thing about that is that it thought, I wanted to go over there and promote it, you know, but the, the Hollies didn't want me to do that. <laughs> and I, that was probably one of the biggest mistakes that they ever made, uh, because if I had have gone over there and done the and done the song properly with the right with the right doing it the right way with my vocal, I think it would have been a lot bigger in America than we were. So that so that answers your previous right. your previous question. You right. know, that if we if we had started there and and then got Ian Heavy and all you know that all behind us and things, you know, we'd have been a lot bigger in America. But that that didn't happen. So doesn't really matter. Well, and then a couple of years after Long Cool Woman, you're, you're back with the boys and, and another huge international hit with the air that I breathe. Yeah, uh, another great song. Uh, two writers. Oh, so, uh, Al Scott. Albert Hammond um, and Mike Hazelwood, was it? Uh, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, I called Bobby Scott and Bobby Russell wrote Ian Heavy. Yeah, it was, yeah, Mike, yeah. Um, I got that. That came to me uh, in a way that Phil uh, Everly, recorded it first right right and he, his album was given to me and some and the 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 secretary of the producer said you must listen to this so i did listen i thought i i can't sing it like him you know that'd be that'd be lunacy to try and better that but ron says no it's a great song we should do it and and again uh, i think that we you know we put that forward in a way that I was so glad to get that song, to get Moncal Woman, and then to get Ian Heavy, He's My Brother, along with Gasoline Alley Bread, The Day That Curly Billy Shot Down Crazy Sam McGee, all those songs in the time that Graham had left. Mm. 
And Graham, quite fondly, does say that how dare they have number ones without me? <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, I mean, when he went to Italy, I felt really awful. Um, I didn't love him for quite a while, and um, and actually having just as many hits as he had sort of softened that blow. You know, oh, and it's as I was before. You know, if he hadn't have left, maybe none of none of that would have happened in the way that it has, which is great. When I was uh, a young radio guy in the business, uh, I I grabbed a song when it was a Tuesday record release day, pulled it out of the box, listened to it, and I said, this is this is going to be a top 10 hit. And it was a hit in America, but it wasn't as big as I thought it should be. I loved I Will Be Your Shadow in the Street. <laughs> well, I did go over there and promote that, uh, but all they wanted me to do was to sing here and heavy. You know, which I did, but that one song I, I'd, I'd written that with a guy called Carrie Benson, and um, and and we'd got the actual uh, orchestration of it by uh, Francis Haynes, and you know I thought that was a great song. Uh, people people do say to me now, it looks like this was somebody who followed someone around and was harassing them and things like that. <laughs> oh, why are you thinking that? But no, I thought that was a great song. Yeah, I really did. And uh, as you say, it made the top 40, and that was it. It came out. That was the nearest I got for a hit in America on my own. You also recorded songs uh, by a young writer that wasn't all that well-known at the time by the name of Bruce Springsteen. Oh, I know. He, uh, well, you know, finding the, his song, the guy that I knew in, was actually publishing his stuff in England, and I was one of the first guys to hear the tapes. You know, and uh, when he played me the tapes that Bruce was doing at that particular time, I had to have Born to Run. I had to have, um, and what was the other one? Uh, uh, <coughs> um, Sandy, that was it, Sandy, right. and another one, with the Priest, which he'd recorded and never released. Mm. Uh, but, I, but I did those songs, uh, and I was going to release Born to Run as a single, but EMI went on strike. And uh, it was for three months. In that time, Bruce obviously had brought his, you know, he brought his version out, which was so much better than mine. <laughs> I, mine didn't have a chance, really. I mean, what was I thinking? You know, I should never have done it. But, but at least I can say I was the first guy to record one of Bruce Springsteen's songs. Just happened to be born to run. <laughs> You've uh, also got a, a big anniversary coming up next year. You and Jenny will be celebrating 60 years of marriage. Yeah, and it's gone so quick. And and, and how? <laughs> how did it last 60 years? No, but, you know, it's, that's life. You know, we have been together for 60 years. In any marriage, there are ups and downs. There are things that you get over and the things you, you don't. And I've never got to a point when I've never got over them. You know, because, you know, me and Jenny, we're just like, you know, spirits in the night. That's it. We know each other so, so well, you know. The, the, the life's just a, it's great, you know. That goes to the rest of my family as well. My kids are friends. They're my friends, you know. They're not, they're not my children. And uh, we, I have a great life with them now. Uh, I always had had a great life, you know. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a very happy man these days, very happy. Oh, that's wonderful. Alan, uh, thank you so much. I uh, love the new album. Uh, you sound uh, absolutely fabulous. Great to hear you and Graham together. And it's been such a treat for us to, to get to talk yeah. with you today. We wish you uh, much success and, and good health. Thank you very much, Rich. And thank you for your time. That's Alan Clark here on Downtown. More information available on Alan's website and uh, the music available uh, everywhere.
including that new single, Buddy's Back. We'll take a break. When we return, Gary Puckett. Here on downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Voices in rock music and uh, hey, boy, still sounds good. Uh, Gary Puckett getting ready to head out for the Happy Together Tour this summer with a whole lot of other talents from the 60s and 70s. We had a chance to visit with Gary and talk about the tour and look back on some of his success with the Union Gap. Let's jump right in here. The Happy Together Tour getting underway uh, again soon. You don't have to go too far. First stop right there at home in Clearwater. <laughs> That's absolutely right. One of the one of the premier venues in all of the United States. It's called Ruth Eckert Hall, and it's really, really a terrific venue. So it's a great place to begin the tour. I'd prefer, between you and me, to have a, a few dates behind us just so that all the quirks um, were worked out. But uh, that's not the case. So anyway, <laughs> all my friends and neighbors and everybody are going to be there, my family, everybody. Well, that's wonderful. And you'll be here in New England, uh, June 11th at Hampton Beach, uh, 13th and 14th in Hyannis and Cohasset, Massachusetts. We've, we've talked to so many of the people who are part of that tour, who have been part of it through the years, uh, Bob and Paul Cowsill, Ron Dante, uh, Mickey Dolans, Mark Volman. There seems to be just a real good sense of community among the performers. Well, there is. You know, we've been friends for many, many years now, and, um, you know, we have through hook or by crook or whatever reason, work together, known each other, uh, run across each other. We've all become acquaintances, and many of us have become very good friends. So having traveled many times with all of them, I consider them all very good friends. Now, am I right that it was kind of your idea to start the tour back in the day? Well, you know, I I recall uh, talking with the people that, began the production of the Happy Together Tour. And I had done a concert in, um, uh, I guess it was on Long Island. It was called the um, the Meadowlands. That was the name of the venue then. I, I'm sure that it's changed a couple of times since then. But um, it was one of those big rock and roll shows, you know, where there were lots and lots of acts. And um, I re- recall... Uh, a fellow from our agency that I've been with for many years coming to me backstage and saying, my boss would like to talk to you. So I said, really? He said, yes, um, he's in New York City. Can you make it? And I said, yeah, sure. Why don't I come in tomorrow? So we were talking and they said, I'm working. uh, We are working with the association and with the Turtles, and we'd like to work with you too. And I thought about it and I said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Let's, uh, Let's get busy and see what we can do. And I said, we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, uh, just touring and things in general. I said, why don't you put us all together? And uh, they went, what? 
I said, put <laughs> us all together out there. I said, we all have, the Turtles have a certain crowd. The association has a certain crowd. I've got a certain crowd. Put them all together. I think you've probably got a good crowd. So they uh, thought it over. They said, yeah, we're going to do that, but we're going to add one more act, and that would be Spanky and our gang. So, yeah, I think I was somehow instrumental in putting that together, at least in the idea form. And, and of course, uh, you know who the audience is, the core audience, and yet if you go to a Happy Together tour show, you see multiple generations of people, and it's got to be great to look out and see you know teenagers and even younger singing along to your songs. Oh, it's absolutely wonderful. You know, I, I see younger people all the time in the concerts, and even our concerts alone, you know, I find the younger folks, and I always ask them how old they are and how they know the music, and um, it, it's always wonderful to hear that they've heard it from their parents or their grandparents. Uh, um, and sometimes they'll say, I, I just don't really care for the music of my genre, so I search the airwaves, so to speak, you know, and find the music that I like, and I discovered the music of the, the 60s in particular, and they said, we just love it. So uh, it's nice. I find young people, too. There's a uh, there's a, an app out there called Cameo, and right, I decided right. to become a part of the Cameo. Um, uh, I started to say clientele, uh, the, 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 the Cameo personalities, you know, and people can request you to uh, – um, sing happy birthday to their mom, their dad, their wife, whoever, you know, uh, or or happy Mother's Day or whatever it is, a Merry Christmas. And um, I generally like to use my guitar and, and uh, sing them a song or whatever, you know. And, and oftentimes those people that are requesting me are younger people, and they'll say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just a young person, but my parents uh, love your music. They have forever, and, I, you know, so, yes, lots of young people, and I think that's a really, really good thing. I'm proud to be a part of all the good music that we made, um, you know, in the late 60s. That's wonderful. Now, are you still driving yourself to the shows on the tour? <laughs> yes, <laughs> we will be driving. I'm just not a person who can do the, the routine of the bus. Uh, a lot of the, the members of the tour like the bus, um, but they oftentimes leave uh, anywhere from midnight to four in the morning, and um, they uh, sometimes hang out at the venue all day long rather than even having a hotel. So not being one who can um, uh, abide by the, <laughs> the rules of the bus, um, you know, and uh, and it, it's difficult to travel on a bus when you've got 10 people and there's personalities and, and somebody catches a cold and, you know, that kind of thing. So I try to stay protected from all that. Besides, it's just better for me to go back to the hotel after the show, get six or seven hours sleep, get up and drive. You know, that's just a better way to go for me. That makes perfect sense to me. We're talking with Gary Puckett here on downtown. I want to go back to, to the beginning. You come from a musical family. Both your parents were singers, right? They were singers. Uh, my mother was also a very accomplished pianist. And my dad was a saxophonist. And uh, they met, um, I guess, right out of high school and were in a in a band, a big band uh, called the Dick Halverson Big Band. And, uh, you know, played the music of their era. I think that they probably both would have liked to gone on and had a career in music, but uh, I think they realized early on that um, music was not an easy uh, or an easy career 
in in their day. So uh, they chose to have a more traditional sort of life. My dad went into merchandising. Uh, my mom was basically uh, a housewife and and raised uh, five children. And um, it, it, you know, we were a we were a close knit family. Uh, my mom continued to play through the years. There was always a piano in the house, and uh, um, she played for church, uh, for gatherings of, of all nature. And my dad would drag out the saxophone once in a while, and of course she played daily, so there was music in the house every day. And and um, he was a, a singer in a barbershop quartet, in, a, in fact, in a couple of them. So, And she was in what they called the Sweet Adelines, which was the 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 female counterpart right. to uh, you know the barbershop society for the preservation of barbershop quartet singing in America big title but <laughs> but a great organization did I read too that your your dad was a prisoner of war in World War II yes you did probably um, he was uh, he was uh, reconnaissance meaning that uh, he was on the front lines and always looking for enemy positions um, in order to let our troops know where they could find the enemy. And uh, he, at one point, was captured by the Germans and spent uh, uh, nearly six months in prison, uh, German prison camps. And uh, there came a point when I think my mother actually thought that he was dead because she got the, uh, the letter that he was missing in action. And, of course, being a prisoner of war, there was no way that, uh, you know, any letters would go out. So um, there came a point also uh, when uh, the Russians were coming and the Germans all left the prison camp and my dad and uh, others were able to escape that, that particular, um, that particular um, place. And they made it back to friendly lines. And uh, yes, he made it back home. And in fact, I wrote a song about it um, some years back called These Beautiful Eyes, which appears on um, our Live in Las Vegas album. It was actually Paul Revere who called me one day and said, uh, you know, I'm going to do my new album for uh, the Vietnam veterans. And I said, let me read you something. So I read him the lyric, and he says, oh, my gosh, that's exactly what I'm into. So uh, I said, let me finish the music, and uh, I'll send it to you. And so uh, Paul Revere's Raiders became the musicians on the track and uh um they recorded it they sent me the track i put a put a vocal on it and uh and it's it's quite a beautiful song actually i'm very proud of it but it honors my mom and dad and i am the 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 beautiful eyes in the song uh because um they talk about you know how he was gone and when he got back she says uh thank god that uh, you gave me these beautiful eyes looking at me, who wow. was their son. Anyway, I'm not explaining it very well, but it's a, it's a nice song. Wow, it's a wonderful story. And now, obviously, knowing the musician's life, they wanted they wanted something different for you. They, they wanted you to, what, be a doctor or a dentist, a professional person? <laughs> yeah, they did. They wanted all parents want their kids to do better than they did. Um, that's a normal thing. And they wanted uh, all of their children to succeed beyond their uh, their abilities uh, but my dad was very successful uh, he 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 worked hard all of his life to provide for his family we were never rich but we were uh, kind of a 
a middle class family that was able to uh, withstand the pressures, you know, of the world. Um, and yeah, they wanted me to go on to college and hopefully be in medicine or something like that. And I never made it. It was always uh, it was always music for me that I wanted to to make happen. Uh, so I did go to um, higher education for a couple of years when I was in San Diego, living in San Diego. And um, uh, there just came a point during those two years that I realized more that it was music that I wanted to do and and not the higher education. So I quit school and, and uh, fortunately was able to make the music thing work and uh, made some music that... Uh, remains popular to this day. Well, that, that first band, The Outcasts, you had a pretty good gig going there in San Diego. And yeah, for bands in those days, you stayed together for a couple of years. That's a pretty good run then. Well, it was a good run, actually. We were a very, very good musical band. We just weren't very good personality-wise. The drummer and the bass player were always fighting about this and that and whatever. And one, they both always wanted to be the leader. They both always wanted to call the songs. They were both always at odds. So there just came a point where I, I broke from the trio that we were, which was a very good band. And we worked in a great club called the Quad Room, and um, we had a great following in San Diego. But I needed to move on um, because it just wasn't working out. Uh, and of course, you know, I was able to find the right guys who became the core of a group that was to be called the Union Gap. And I love the story, too, of you. I think you, you went into Los Angeles and, and knocked on a whole lot of doors and then actually got in to see uh, producer Jerry Fuller. And, and uh, am I right that he was in the process of hanging up a gold record when you walked into his office? Yeah, he was newly hired by Columbia Records at that point. Um, he had had some local success when he lived in Texas as a uh, singer, songwriter, producer. And he went to Los Angeles to seek his fame and fortune and um, was hired by Columbia Records because he had written a song called uh, Traveling Man, which he had originally written for Sam Cooke, but Sam didn't want it. Ricky Nelson did, and it sold 4 million copies. So Columbia Records was impressed with that, and they said, well, we'll hire you to find talent to write songs and to produce records for Columbia Records. And uh, just happened that he was putting his office together at the moment that I walked into his office and uh, had a portfolio in my hand that sort of displayed the talents of this new group that I was calling the Union Gap. So um, I walked in. I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm hanging up a gold record. And I said, I've never seen one of those before. Let me see it up close. And he said, right, here you go. There it is. I was very impressed. And I asked him if he'd take a look at my portfolio. And he did. And he liked what he heard and what he saw. And he uh, came to see us in San Diego. And um, and he decided that we were worthy of making a record. So uh, he said, I'll, I'll come back with papers. And uh, we will sign here in the bowling alley, sitting in this booth <laughs> when I get it all together. So uh, that's what he did. He went back to Los Angeles, came back about six weeks later with uh, recording contracts, publishing contracts, all the things that were necessary for us to make a record. And uh, he said, here, I've got a song in my hand that, uh, that I think is a hit record. So let's make this record here. And he handed me a song called Woman, Woman, Have You Got Cheating on Your Mind? It was uh, recorded by Tom Paul and the Glazer Brothers as a country record. And it, 
it had seen no success in the national chart. So uh, we made a pop record out of it, and don't you know that it uh, went to the top of the chart. And I just heard, I don't know if you've heard this, that uh, Jimmy Payne passed away in the last couple days. I did not hear that. No. Yeah, I wow. just I saw that online actually uh, late last night, and uh, was very sad to see uh, that. He had a tremendously successful career, mostly in Nashville. Yes. Oh, I'm really sad to hear that. Oh. I'm sorry to... Well, thanks for the bad news. What yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, that session, too, uh, for Woman Woman, I think you guys would do it. Three songs in that session, and you had uh, a friend of our show, the late, great Hal Blaine. Glenn Campbell was on guitar. Was Carol Kay there, too? She was. She was on bass. Actually, Carrie Chater, who was our bass player, and Carol Kay, sat next to each other. They wow. both could read music, obviously. And um, they uh, combined their bass sound and came up with whatever uh, was apropos for our recording. <clears throat> and yes, there were others there. Howard Roberts, very famous guitarist, was there. Other famous in these musician circles were there. We had a 30-piece orchestra, so it was pretty phenomenal. And uh, um, it, it's emblazoned in my memory and something I'll, I'll always have that I can just see before me. Boy, in 1968 was just an incredible year. You, you sold more records than anybody. The Beatles included that year. So many great hits, uh, Lady Willpower, uh, Young Girl. I think my, my favorite of the, the Union Gap recordings, I think the best vocal performance was Over You. I just love that song. Well, thank you very much. So many people tell me that 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 is their favorite. Um, and do you know, this is a little bullet point here that's kind of fun. Um, do you remember um, Jack Webb and Sergeant Joe Friday on, <laughs> on Dragnet? I on sure television? do. Mm. Yeah, well, that was his favorite record, his favorite song, and I was his favorite singer. And that was told to me by a, a fellow that was doing his biography. So um, I'm quite proud of that fact because I recall easily, you know, the fact that I would sit in front of the TV when I was a kid and watch Sergeant Joe Friday say, <laughs> just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Uh, you got to do a lot of television, all the big variety shows of the area, uh, era of the Ed Sullivan Show a couple times, uh, and that was that was a little different from some of the others because you had to actually sing live, right? No lip syncing? Well, they would have allowed me to lip sync, but I wanted to sing live, and they wanted me to sing live. So uh, it was it was kind of frightening, but, yeah, I did it three times. And um, it was really a great, great experience. Uh, um, one of those times, I recall that my manager, Peter Rackman, at the time, was there with his girlfriend, Karen Black, the famous actress. Mm. And um, she was just a bizarre, fun um, friend uh, who came and attended the, the show uh, with me. And it, it was just fun to be there with them and to see it all transpire and, and uh, you know, meet Ed and, you know, just everything that went on. It was a fun, fun day. But like I say, very scary because they said, you know, there's only 8 million people watching this show, so don't be scared. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, you had a great string of hits, but uh, you, you didn't want to record. You were not a fan of the song that Jerry Fuller brought to you, Don't Give In to Him. Well, I wasn't a fan of the song at the time, but it turned out to be one of my favorites just because of its musical structure, uh, the chordal uh, forms and shapes and, and things. And uh, um, I, I, I thought in those days that I had 
some sort of, um, oh, I don't know, that maybe I was knowledgeable about hit re- recordings and things like that. I should have just said, dare shut up and sing and let them do their thing, you know. But, uh, no, I wasn't a, fav- a fan of the song then, but uh, I love the song now, and it's, it certainly has uh, uh, done pretty well. I wanted to clarify the fact that that we did sell more recordings than anybody, including the Beatles, but that was single recordings, not albums. Right. I'm certain that that the Beatles outsold us uh, <laughs> in albums. Uh, you went on to have success with uh, producer Dick Glasser too, with another top ten hit with "This Girl Is a Woman." Now, that's correct, and what a great song that is! Uh, still one of my favorites, and uh, one of the more difficult ones to sing. Oh yeah. <laughs> And uh, you released some solo records and, and you know, did not have the chart success, but I, I thought some great recordings. I love your cover of the old Dusty Springfield hit, I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I think it's a, a wonderful song as well. In fact, we're just about to put together I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself along with The House Is Not a Home to mm. tribute to uh, Mr. Bacharach because there, he just was such an, an incredibly talented and great writer. And yeah, you've talked about this before, as the 60s became the 70s, uh, people's tastes seemed to change almost overnight, and, and there were so many uh, individuals, so many groups that it had success, but when the 70s rolled around, uh, people wanted to hear something new, and then it was tough to, to get that chart action back again. Yeah, it was. You kind of said it all right there. You know, the, everything was changing uh the type, the the way that recordings, uh, technology was changing. Um, they were trying to wind down the Vietnam War, and people were concerned socially as well. And and um, I mean, just just the drug of the day had changed, and and the music was changing, getting into disco, getting into glitter rock, and all that kind of thing. And um, you know, the public can be a little fickle at times, uh, but. Uh, Fortunately for me and many others of my era, they came back to me and said, hey, we miss you. <laughs> well, you, you had the rise of classic rock stations, but we've had a number of, of performers talk with us about how important CDs were when companies began to reissue some of the albums that had only been available on vinyl, and all of a sudden a new generation discovered that music of the 60s. Yep, really true. Um, I'm very fortunate, too, because we had such a big year in 1968 that um, one of the first albums that that Columbia Records released on CD was Gary Puckett and the Union Gap's Greatest Hits, and uh, it continues to be a great seller to this day. So uh, there's a couple of different packages, the Super Hits, the Greatest Hits, uh, and other uh, combo kind of things, but Fortunately, like I said, you know, those uh, those CDs did uh, did well for us. And it was good to see in the early 80s how um, how the radio stations started to proliferate throughout the U.S. and become the classic rock stations. And and that's exactly why the very first Happy Together tour, which was the Turtles, the Association, Gary Puckett and the Union Gap and Spanky and our gang. Uh, became successful with the Happy Together Tour. We toured eight months of that year because of you guys playing the music and saying, hey, we love you, we've missed you, uh, we're bringing you back. So thank you, everybody. 
And what do you do, Gary, to keep that voice in such great shape? You you sound every bit as good as you did 50 years ago. Well, I'll just say God is good, and uh, it was a gift from him, and I do my best to uh, stay in good health. Um, and I have to stay hydrated. That's very, very important. Um, I try to get some exercise, and uh, as of late, I've been a little bit sluggish on the exercise. Life gets very busy as you have two daughters and four grandkids and the family is growing and all that. But uh, good good nutrition, uh, drinking lots and lots of water and, um, you know, a good belief in the higher powers, which is God himself. And you had a little bout, as so many did with COVID, but uh, apparently it didn't treat you too badly. Well, you know, uh, no, it didn't treat me too badly because I'm in pretty good health. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, the um, uh, I, I had the typical rash that, that I guess um, COVID can give you uh, on your back, and it was annoying. Um, I had the night sweats, and that was very annoying because I'd wake up in the middle of the night sweating, and I'd have to get up and dry off and, you know, change shirts and that kind of stuff. But uh, after about three weeks of no energy and not really feeling like uh, – uh, eating and things like that. Eventually, it left me, and and I've been fine ever since. Of course, we've continued to to do the right thing, have our shots, and get our boosters and that kind of stuff. So, and our daughter, our older daughter, is a pediatrician, so she's a medical doctor, and she was fighting for uh, the shots and uh, you know protecting ourselves against future. And she uh, immediately made sure that her, her children had uh, the shots and the boosters and things. So so we're all protected, and, and we're doing good. Well, we're glad to hear that. Looking forward to the tour. The Happy Together Tour clicks, uh, kicks off May 31st in Clearwater here in New England, June 11th at Hampton Beach, the 13th and 14th in Massachusetts at Hyannis and Cohasset. If you get a chance to see Gary and everybody else on the tour you're going to love it. Gary, it's uh, great to talk with you. We appreciate you making some time for us today. It is totally my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the airwaves with you, and I'm looking forward to the 13th and the 14th of June for sure. That's Gary Puckett with us here on Downtown. Look for Gary when he comes your way, or pretty close to it. He'll be in New England for shows down at the Hampton Beach, Cohasset, and Hyannis Mass, and, and many more check out the Happy Together Tour. Our thanks to Gary, thanks to the great Alan Clark, and to you for joining us. See you next time right here on Downtown.